Uh, before we start looking at the Bible together, I'm just going to read a passage from it. This is from Romans chapter 6. And I don't have a Bible. Can someone pass me a Bible? <laughs> Knew I forgot something. Thanks, Claire. Right. That's where I test my eyes. Yeah, so Romans chapter 6. I'm reading from uh, page 1133. This is a letter to one of the earliest Christian churches in Rome. Uh, It dates from the second half of the first century. And it's an explanation from an early Christian leader called Paul about what's going on when we're baptised. It says, all of us who were baptised into into Christ Jesus, don't you know that we were baptised into his death? I should say I'm reading from verse 3 at the top of the page. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. I'm going to read from these. This is a better better translation here. By being baptised, we've been joined with him in a death like his. So we will certainly also be joined with him in a resurrection like his. We know that what we used to be like was nailed to the cross with him. That happened so our bodies that were ruled by sin would lose their power. So we're no longer slaves of sin. That's because we who have died have been set free from sin. We died with Christ. So we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ was raised from the dead and will never die again. Death doesn't control him anymore. When he died, he died once and for all time. He did this to break the power of sin. Now that he lives, he lives in the power of God. It's the word of God. So I want to explain something of what's happening here today. I know that for some of us it's an unfamiliar experience. Jo's already explained how she came to be a follower of Jesus. And I want to provide a, a bigger view of what's going on. So I'm going to begin, as the prophet Julie Andrews tells me to, with the very beginning. Because that's a very fine place to start. (laughs) One of the most important ideas in not just Western civilization, not just Western Christianity, but in any uh, place and in any time, is that everything has a beginning. Now that sounds trite, but I'm going to work from something very uncontroversial and move forward from there. There's a start to everything. But you begin at the very beginning, because it's a very fine place to start. Everything is caused by something. That's what we believe. It's not just what we believe, it's what we know, it's common sense. Everything has a cause. Whether you believe that life evolved and developed over billions of years or just a few thousand, it must have had a beginning at somewhere and at some time. Right, that's why scientists talk about the Big Bang. What they're saying is there was a moment when there was nothing and then there was something. I've never got my head around the idea of how it could be a bang when there was a vacuum and there was nowhere to have sound. But anyway, there was a moment when there was nothing and then there was something. Stars are giant nuclear reactions flaming in a glorious beauty, illuminating a galaxy of light, and yet each one of them started from a reaction this big. 
I mean, actually, a fraction of this size, but I can't illustrate that. Each one of them started somewhere. They were all caused. Everything has a cause. I'm a Tottenham fan, and I, I'm used to the process of trying to find causes, usually for defeats. <laughs> if you uh, look at Tottenham's current run of form, it's atrocious. The quarterfinals of the Champions League, but we are also falling away in the league in a way that's familiar, but nevertheless brings a sense of rising dread in me. And if I want to find the cause of that, I will go back and say, well, they haven't signed a player in over a year. They all look knackered. It's got a cause. What's the cause of that? You can go back and what's the cause of that? And what's the cause of that? And what's the cause of that? Everything has a cause. Even giving it a moment's thought, if we look back to the very first event in the universe, it must have been caused by something. For those of you who are physicists, you will uh, have heard the phrase, there was matter and antimatter and they collided and something caused it. There was a reason why it happened. And that's who we call God. That first cause is who we call God. The thing that stands apart from the universe and makes the universe happen. God makes sense of what we see about the universe. The belief in God is not irrational, it's not non-rational. It is a perfectly reasonable deduction from what we see about the universe. That's why most of the great scientists of history have been people of faith. Because they believe that there is something that makes sense of the world they observe. God also makes sense of what we feel about the universe. So it not only makes sense of what we can observe what we see about the universe, he also makes sense of how we feel, how we experience it. Now we instinctively, I think, feel that life has a purpose. Certainly we all behave that way. We all behave as if what we're doing matters. When you come across somebody who behaves as if nothing they do matters, they're usually a toddler. Causing havoc in your home. Because we all believe that the way we live has some significance. We sense that life has a purpose, that it, that we, have been designed for something. Now, again, I want to suggest this actually makes sense of the universe as we know it. This isn't just an article of faith, religious faith. It's perfectly reasonable. It makes sense. The conditions for life to exist, I'm just going to give you a a quick insight as to why I say this. The conditions for life to exist in the universe at all let alone to have developed and evolved in the way it has, to the point where there is an organism so complex he's able to stand up here and make jokes about the temperature of water, are mind-bogglingly unlikely. They are so finely tuned, so accurately set, that if they were out by even a fraction, any one of them, life would not have developed at all. It's called fine-tuning, you can read about it online. The conditions for you to exist, for a microbe to have existed, at all, are so remotely unlikely, they literally cannot be calculated. That's how unlikely they are. Nor are they necessary. They might not have happened at all. Let me give you a flavour. I'm going to draw from the work of two physicists. This gets lighter, this talk, as we go along. Don't worry. Physicist PCW Davies calculated the change in the strength of gravity or of the atomic weak force by one part in 10,100 so gravity was off by literally one in 10,100 of a measure it would have prevented life developing in the universe at all 
the cosmological constant which drives the inflation of the universe and is responsible for its expansion is, ex- is fine-tuned, so set, to one part in 10,120. Think about that. Each one of these conditions is so finely, precisely set that if we're out by anything up to one in one in 10,120, it would be out. So this is Professor Roger Penrose of Oxford University. Calculate the odds of the Big Bang's low entropy condition existing. So the idea that the Big Bang happened at all, like the very first event, even the conditions existing, the chances in 10 to the 10 to 123. So that is naught point, and then 123 noughts, and then one. That the conditions in the first place even exist. That's how unlikely it is. He says, I cannot recall seeing anything else in physics whose accuracy is known to approach, even remotely, a figure like that. And that's just one of them. It's not just one of them that has to be in place for life to even develop at all, for the universe to even exist at all. Not just one of them. Every single one that is as unlikely as that has to be in place. Every single value. Talking about gravity, the basic ideas of life. He says, so improbability is multiplied by improbability by improbability until our minds are reeling in incomprehensible numbers. Numbers so remote that they cannot reasonably be calculated. It's almost as if it has a point. It's almost as if somebody is saying, I have designed this system for you. No, I'm arguing for that, and you might be sitting there thinking, goodness me, Phil, there are a lot of noughts. But we all knew that already. Right, most of us don't need someone to stand up here and say, let me prove to you that the universe is designed with a purpose, because every one of us already knows that we have a purpose. We sense that our lives matter. We live as if we have a purpose bigger than simply our own pleasure. Look at the way parents parent their children. Look at the way the old give themselves for the young and the young for the old. Look at the selflessness of humanity. It's as if we sense that actually there's a reason for doing things that's bigger than just ourselves. It's God that makes sense of this. How do you make sense of this idea absent the idea of God? We see that the universe looks designed. We feel as if we are purposeful. And the best explanation of this is that it's been designed by someone and that he has a purpose. That you have a purpose. That your life is not a cold, meaningless accident, but purposeful and wonderfully designed. So what is that purpose? Well, people differ. Here I think is the most influential and best way of describing it. It's from St. John, who was Jesus' best friend. He says, God is love, and he wants us to love. And why do I say I think that's the best answer to this question about what's the purpose of life? What's the purpose of your life? And mine? Well, because it makes sense of how we experience life. Jesus said, what is it that God really wants from every single person on the planet? 
What is the reason he made life? He says it's to love him with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and love others as yourself. That's what God is like and that's what he's designed us for. Again, it makes sense of how we experience life. It, it, it makes sense of why I feel incredibly guilty when I yell at my kids unreasonably. Right, anybody here is a parent will have had that experience. They get up on the wrong side of bed and then the kid comes down and they've got 15 annoying questions before breakfast has started because they're six. And when you're six, you've thought up 15 annoying questions before breakfast started. Six of which are why. And they're not being naughty, but it's just annoying. And so I get annoyed and I shout at them. And then I sense somehow that I've let myself down. It's that sense of letting oneself down, that you've somehow we've not quite worked with the purpose we were having. We uh, sense that we were created for something, and this isn't it. That I'm not at my best. I'm not fulfilling my best me when I'm angry with my children. Or when I'm being cut up at the lights and yelling out the window at the driver who's cut me off. Get that sense afterwards that mm, probably not, probably not what I was designed for. I wish I was better. It's why we praise and extol stories of courage and friendship and self-sacrifice. Why? Because we recognise in them something we all aspire to be. That sense that we were created for something and that this is showing us it a little bit more. So Christians believe that there's a God who created us, that he created us with a purpose and that purpose is to love him and love others. And I've argued so far that that's a very, very good and rational and reasonable belief to have. In fact, it's the only belief that makes sense of the way we experience life and how we observe it. And yet there's a problem with this explanation. It doesn't take a genius to work out what it is. Why is the world which contains such beauty and self-giving also ruined with such selfishness and pain? This week of all weeks, we don't need that. Since I don't need to argue with that, I feel like I almost ought to be able to state it as a fact. We experience a world that is capable of being beautiful and wonderful and that we sense is called to that, that we are called to that, and that we also experience the brokenness and pain of not living in that way. The best explanation when one senses that something's beautiful and it's been broken is that somebody broke it. I remember uh, very clearly uh, coming into my room, uh, my living room where we used to live in East London, when the boys were uh, just learning to crawl and coming down and finding uh, something broken. And saying to them, uh, they were two at the time, uh, I've been crawling, I must have been walking. Uh, boys, did one of you break this? And they both said no and pointed to the other one. <laughs> and they said, well, Daddy wasn't born yesterday. It is broken. It wasn't before. There are only two of you here. Someone broke it. We don't use our lives and the world we've been given to love God and love others, right? We don't do that. What's the reason we experience so much pain in life? Well, there's natural disaster and then there's human-made disaster. And actually, the one feeds into the other most of the time. Why is it that we experience the world the way we do? Well, we use the world and we use each other for ourselves rather than giving ourselves to others. 
selfishness is what it's called. I don't know each one of you. I, I'm sorry. Even if I've known you for a number of years, I, I probably won't remember your name. I'm sorry about that. It's one of the reasons why I always try and shrug off the duty of toddler group of signing people in. Because I am faced with the uh, purgatory of sitting here, faced by somebody who I've seen week in, week out for four years with their children, having to say, can you just remind me of your name again? And they're all very lovely about it, but they're spoiled because Heather has this encyclopedic knowledge of names, and I don't. I don't know each one of you, so I can't speak intelligibly about your lives, but I can speak about myself. I know that I don't always love God with all my heart and love my neighbours as myself. Right? I'll hold my hands up. I don't do it. I can be proud. I can be selfish. I can lie or be spiteful. I can be insecure and gossip about others. At, at times I've fought to get my own way, physically if necessary. There are occasions, brace yourselves, in which Heather and I lose our tempers with each other or with our kids. What's the effect of all this? Well, each time one of these moments happens, each of these actions and attitudes, it has the effect of cutting us off a little bit from other people, right? That's what happens when your relationships break down. That's what happens when we act selfishly, is that we get cut off from other people a little bit. And we also get cut off from God. Just a little bit of time. But then you multiply it by 7 billion people in the world now. And multiply that 7 billion by the whole of a span of life. And all of a sudden, you have a planet full of people capable of wonderful beauty and incredible selflessness, created to love one another and share and care for one another and love God, but who too often choose selfishness. And that's just at the moment. Then if we extrapolate back through the whole of human history, you end up with pollution, and climate change, you end up with wars and slavery and unkindness and rivalry and poverty and greed and divorce and desertion and desperation. And so we start to understand why it is that a world made with a purpose, which is love, is experienced as painful, somehow marred with ultimate fulfillment and goodness just out of reach. You're feeling good about yourselves this morning. I came, I came to be uplifted. Bring back the nice lady with the songs. <laughs> so we're a world created by God who loves us and has a purpose for us, and yet a world that chooses and can't help choosing to turn our backs on him and on each other. And so it gets to the point we can't help it. That's what we call sin, right? Sin's an unfashionable word because it has overtones either of a sort of Scottish Presbyterian hunched over, banging a stick on a table ready to beat it out of you, or of a galaxy chocolate bar that's somehow described as sinful yet delicious. I want to suggest that it's neither of those things. What it is is the human propensity to mess stuff up. That's what sin is. Sin is the human propensity to mess up relationships, to mess up the world. not just a one-time decision, it's propensity. I'm a hopeless case. Becomes such a part of our lives and cultures and uh, natures that we can't escape it. We've got ourselves into a terrible mess and need to be rescued. And so this is where Christians believe Jesus comes in. Christians believe that God loved the world so much, designed it to an unfathomable degree, and loved it so much, loved you and me so much, that he was not content to leave it suffering and dying. 
Now again, that intuitively makes sense to me. I don't like it when I make something and my kids break it. In fact, I really don't like it. It's one of the things I don't like more than anything. Yesterday, Abigail uh, refused to eat her dinner. I made her pasta and pesto. Okay? Now, I didn't work hard at this. I don't want too many points. The pasta was already cooked. I just put it in the microwave. Pour some boiling water on it. I mixed pesto in with it. I grated cheese on it. I took like, no care over this at all. And then when she refused to eat it, I was irritated. I'm improperly annoyed. And then she's like, can I have an ice cream? I'm like, no. Of course you can't have an ice cream. What about the pasta? You can't even eat it now. Mummy's finished it up. No ice cream for you today, love. It annoys me when they break the stuff I've made. I can't imagine how God feels about a universe he created where it's like, I fine-tuned this to a point where even the brightest people in the world cannot work out how unlikely this place is. Do you have any idea how much care I took over this? And what have you guys done with it? Let's turn on the news. I can't imagine how angry I would be. And yet God was so filled with love that he said, I don't want to leave it like this. I don't want to leave you like this. And that makes sense to me. If I see one of my children in pain, even if it's self-inflicted, everything else stops and I just go to them. And so God came. Think about that for a minute. God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, came and lived in obscurity, in poverty. Confronted evil, stood up to the proud and powerful, healed the sick, taught us how to live, suffered and was executed by those he created and then came to life again. Think about that. Christians believe that Jesus made it possible for the great lie of sin and death to be undone. For us to to receive a new start and a new life by accepting we need forgiveness and a new start. By trusting God's love for us and then following Jesus. Think about that quote that we read from Jesus at the beginning. I'm like a gate. Anyone who enters through me will be saved. What Jesus is saying is, imagine that every time you you are selfish and unkind or proud or spiteful or gossipy or any of those other things, you just add another brick on the wall. Until over a lifetime the wall becomes so big that you can't get over it. And it separates you from other people and separates you from God. And now Jesus is saying, look, I've put a gate in the middle of it. Do you want to come through? How did I put the gate there? Well, I took each one of the bricks. Each one of those things you did. I took one of those and I carried it away myself. And in this place I put a door. Do you want to come through it? That's what Joe's doing today. She's starting a new journey. She's saying, I want to follow Jesus. I accept what he's done for me and now I want to live a new way. I want to follow him. She's choosing the life for which we were all created, of love of God and others. And God has promised that he will come and help her set her free from an old way of living and give her a new life. It's why it's such a big deal, why we make such a big deal out of it. Now I love, uh, I've grown to love Disney fairy princess stories. Now I know that that might be an unexpected turn for this sermon to take. I feel very secure in my own masculinity. You have to watch these things often enough. You get to like them, right? There's a really good PhD to be written on people who had to sit and watch the Tigger movie 40 times and its effect on them. 
this story of Sleeping Beauty where the girl comes under the curse and she falls into a sleep from which she cannot escape until someone's willing to fight to remove all the things that trap her and to come and to wake her up and to lead her into a new life. Now if that sounds like a familiar story, it's because it's the story we tell over and over again. It's basically one of the two stories in Hollywood. Heather and I went to see Captain Marvel last week. That's the same story. Right, except this time it's a woman who's doing the rescuing. Doesn't seem to matter. It could be Wonder Woman, Superman, Captain Marvel, Prince Philip from Sleeping Beauty. Same story of a people trapped by evil who need to be released by a rescuer. And we make, make it over and over again. I've said this before. I think the Marvel movies are now up to something like 15 or 20 billion dollars taken worldwide. They just tell the same story over and over again. Let me save you the time. We've got free, free gospel outside that will tell you the story they're going to tell you over and over again. Of someone who comes to save the people he loves. I've always had a suspicion, however, every time I've watched Sleeping Beauty, that my response would be rather more Garfield than Beauty. See, Garfield has woken up here, for those of you who can't read it, it says, bring on his alarm clock. He says, I love to wake up early. The earlier you set your arm, the longer you can oversleep. <laughs> and there's a second one. Garfield, I worry about you, his owner says. I know you hate getting up, but why do you have to lynch the alarm clock? <laughs> and Garfield replies, he had it coming. I've often wondered whether if I were Aurora, if I got that right... She's the one in Sleeping Beauty? Take from me. If I were her and I've been asleep for 50 years and then this prince turns up, or princess, I hope, turns up and fights the dragon and wakes me up, I'd be like, mate, do you know what I mean? Five more minutes. <laughs> Bring me a cup of tea and then we'll talk. You know, that's actually the tragedy of our situation. The tragedy of our situation is that we're more Garfield than we are Sleeping Beauty. That Jesus comes and he says, here is everything I've done for you. Will you get up and come after me? And we say five more minutes. Ten more minutes. I wonder if this is how we react to God. Christians believe that God so loved the world that in each one of us in it that his son came and died for us, defeated our enemies and offered to free us and give us new life. All we need to do is accept it and go with him. If Joe isn't perfect, sorry love, she's not perfect. She won't be perfect. She's not saying she's arrived. What she is saying is, I want to get up and follow the one who's come to rescue me. I do want him to change me. I do want the life of hope and peace that he offers. That's her choice. That's why she's been baptised. It's the same choice that each one of us faces. You know, daily. I don't care if you've been following Jesus for 50 years. Each day... We have to make that choice to get up and follow. Well, you might not have ever been in a church before. And if that's you, or you're somewhere in between, then God is saying to you, I love you, you're designed for a purpose, and I've come to free you and help you live it, and offer you new life and forgiveness and all the rest. But you've got to get up and follow. 
Or you could just go back to sleep and pull the covers over your heads. In the end, that's only each one of us can make that choice.